From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A virus had shut down the world, the West was on fire, protesters filled the streets. And despite it all, Denver comedian Adam Caton Holland and his wife decided to have a second child. While I'm a cynical, pessimistic guy, having a kid and then having another kid is the most optimistic thing you can do. And it is sort of a bet on life and them. And so at some point, I'm not there yet, you do just have to take your hands off the wheel and say, it's your turn, little dudes. I'm gonna arm you the best I can. Here's the planet, here's the world. It's a gift you're in it. So good luck to you. Fatherhood is the subject of Adam's hilarious new TV special. So we promise plenty of laughter. Hi, I'm Jen Beck, and we donated a family car to CPR. We have always wanted to find a way to give back to this programming that's such an important source of unbiased local news and entertainment. So it felt amazing to donate this car to CPR. I think we made a phone call, we filled out a form, and a couple days later, a tow truck came and picked it up. That was it. It was almost effortless. It's easier to say goodbye to your car when you donate it at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Congress is back at it next week, and both chambers face a pileup of work, the budget, the border, aid to allies, and more. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim joins us to talk about all that's ahead. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Ryan. The backdrop, of course, is that 2024 is an election year. So I actually want to start with the big switcheroo, Republican Representative Lauren Boebert's decision to seek re-election, not for her current seat, where she represents Western and Southern Colorado, but in the fourth congressional district on the other side of the state. Where does that stand now that the news has had, what, about a week to settle in? Well, Ryan, politically, it was a smart strategic move for her, you know, if she wants to keep a job in Congress. But Lauren Boebert hasn't cleared the field for the 4th Congressional District. No one dropped out of the crowded Republican primary race for the seat because of her announcement. Hmm. And some actually criticized Boebert as a carpetbagger or, you know, seat shopping. And it also hasn't stopped other people from getting into the race. Mike Lynch, who had been thinking about entering this race for a while, officially jumped in after Boebert's announcement. Okay, and the scene back in her current district. Well, Boebert's move does make it more likely for a Republican to win in the third congressional district, even though Democrat Adam Frisch has raised more than $7 million this cycle. What will be interesting to see is who else jumps into that race now that it's an open seat. You know, Jeff Hurd was mounting a strong primary challenge against Boebert and has support across the district. But others are expected to get into the race. Um, Ron Hanks, who ran for Senate uh, last cycle, told Colorado Politics he plans to enter the race. But he's also sort of in that controversial Boebert vein. So if that happens, Frisch still has a shot. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, Lynn, tomorrow is the anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. You were there in the building that day. This seems like a good moment to take stock. How is that impacting the work of legislating? You know, I think three years on, it's impacting it a lot still, especially when it comes to, like, relations between Republicans and Democrats on the Hill. 
But let's be honest, you see it also with people, with voters, you know, some who believe conspiracy theories like the FBI instigated that attack or, you know, is it an insurrection? Is it a riot? Was it a capital tour? You know, there are just different takes on January 6th, depending on your political bent. Um, just the fact that in Colorado, some Republicans and unaffiliated voters are trying to get Donald Trump taken off of the ballot because they believe he encouraged an insurrection. You see that it still has repercussions. Um, now, President Joe Biden met with historians earlier this week to talk about sort of this broader issue of America's democracy. And he's going to be at Valley Forge today and is, is, is expected to talk about democracy and freedom. And this moment that we've been in post uh, the 2020 election in January 6th, his campaign actually even launched an ad where he says there is this um, extremist movement that doesn't share the basic beliefs of our democracy. So I will also just add this, as, you know, as someone, as you mentioned, who was in that building that day, I still think it was a black eye for American democracy. But I'm not sure that others agree. I mean, three years later, Donald Trump is still the front runner for the GOP nomination for president. And all the top House Republican leaders have endorsed him. Okay, to the congressional agenda. When lawmakers return next week, the top of their to-do list is funding the government and avoiding a shutdown. What's the deadline? All right, so we've got (laughs) just about two weeks left before we'd start a partial government shutdown. And we're talking things like Veterans Affairs, Ag, um, FDA, Energy and Water, and Transportation and Housing. And it's partial because of how Congress structured their last funding bill, right? Right. Uh, In mid-November, Congress passed a so-called laddered CR. And what that means is that they essentially funded part of the government until January 19th, and the rest of the government until February 2nd. You know, the idea was to avoid passing some large omnibus uh, government spending bill, something House Republicans are very much against. Now, for weeks, you've heard some Republicans uh, say how they're not going to do another CR, and they're not going to pass a big omnibus. Instead, they're insisting Congress must pass 12 individual appropriations bills. But realistically, this is very unlikely to happen. And why is it unlikely? Because they haven't made any progress on any of them. In the weeks since uh, Congress passed the CR, neither chamber has taken up any of the remaining individual appropriations bills. If you're keeping track, the House has only passed seven of the 12 and the Senate three of the 12. Now, in defense of the Senate, they did get all 12 out of committee on strong bipartisan votes. That cannot be said of the House. But essentially, since the last stopgap funding measure was passed, neither chamber has done any work on appropriations bills. Where does that leave us with the country? (laughs) Um, The news doesn't look that great right now. Um, Leaders still need to agree on top line numbers. The Senate wants funding in line with last year's debt ceiling bill, um, including informal agreements between Democratic leaders and then Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. House leaders are open to using that official figure from the debt ceiling bill, um, but they are not uh, on board with some of these handshake agreements. So two weeks out. Still no agreement. (laughs) I mean, I'm a little confused by like this talk of different sorts of deals and approaches. What kind of funding is in dispute here? Maybe we can answer that. So it's it's a lot of numbers and I apologize ahead of time. But um, (laughs) the debt ceiling bill was for one point five nine trillion in this fiscal year. 
about $886 billion for defense spending and just over $700 billion for non-defense spending. Now, the side deals included um, like taking $20 billion from the IRS uh, to be repurposed for appropriations. So you could sort of plus up some of the non-defense spending as well as getting back some unspent COVID aid also to plus up the non-defense spending. The Senate's top appropriators crafted a side deal of about $14 billion in emergency funding for government appropriations. $8 billion would go to defense and the rest to different sort of other non-defense spending. Now, several House conservatives don't support the side deals, right? They're, they are trying to get that number as low as possible. And remember, Speaker Johnson can only lose now two Republican votes unless he has something that could get bipartisan support. What happens if the House and Senate don't come together on this soon? So one option is they could pass a full-year CR, but the debt limit deal said if they do that, there would be a 1% across-the-board cut, which a lot of members on both sides of the aisle don't want. It's like taking an axe to the budget rather than a scalpel. Hmm. There's talk of a bill that could essentially uh, would essentially be a full-year CR without the cut, or we could have a partial government shutdown while they work it out, and if they don't work it out by February 2nd, a full government shutdown. Okay, the full February 2nd. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and our Washington correspondent, Caitlin Kim, joins us as Congress next week gets back to work, or tries to, I suppose. We've been talking about general government funding, but there's also this separate debate over money for national security, specifically for Ukraine, Israel, and the border. Where does that stand? That's right. You know, the Senate has been holding these bipartisan negotiations for weeks, including talking with the White House. They're making progress, they say, but again, still no deal or no bill text. And what are the sticking points? Well, when it comes to border security and immigration writ large, there, you know, that has been an issue that Congress just hasn't been able to tackle in decades. No. There seems to be agreement that, yeah, standards to claim asylum need to be raised, but they're still trying to negotiate sort of the ideas of or the issues of parole and um, expulsion authorities. Now, House Republicans seem to be digging in their heels on their hardline border bill known as H.R. 2, which passed with only Republican votes. Um, The Senate is hoping that if they can get a deal and they can pass it with a strong bipartisan vote, it would force House Republicans to take up um, that sort of bipartisan deal. But look, it didn't happen in 2013 with the Senate's bipartisan immigration reform bill. And at least one House Republican has said the quiet part out loud, which is they don't want to support a compromise measure if it will also help President Biden politically. And thus the influence of the election year. What about funding for Ukraine? I mean, this is something that Colorado Senator Michael Bennett has been pushing hard for. Yes, um, but the issue is less with Democrats or even Senate Republicans, but House Republicans who are becoming much more critical of continued military aid to Ukraine. Now, I'll point out the aid would actually go to help replenish U.S. stockpiles, but this is also part of the reason border security is included. It's the idea of a little something for everyone, which sort of was like what what you had to do to get stuff passed in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, I will point out, for the most part, the entire Colorado delegation is supportive of aid to Ukraine. Only Republican Lauren Boebert has voted against it. And there's military aid to Israel cut up in all of this. Yes, again, an issue that the vast majority of Congress agrees on. But Speaker Mike Johnson chose to provide aid to Israel um, in a bill, again, supported by both sides of the aisle, um, aid to Israel. 
But the bill also tied more IRS cuts to it. And that's a partisan move to chip away at a Biden achievement. It also didn't include aid to other allies, which is what the Senate wanted to include. So now it's part of this larger national security package negotiation going on. Fascinating that Israel and the IRS wind up being tied in some of this legislation. So (laughs) funding fights of all sorts seem like the big headache for Congress as it gets, uh, gets back to work. But are there other hurdles for both chambers? Uh, Yes. And if a lot of these issues sound familiar, it's because they are. Congress punted on all of these from last year. Um, There's the question of renewing FISA. That's a controversial government surveillance program, um, which got extended at the end of last year to April 19th. But in Congress, especially again within the House Republican Conference, there's a lot of debate over how to change um, something called Section 702, which allows for a collection of online communications from non-U.S. persons abroad. Now, the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee have offered up different reforms. And the issue, um, it, you know, it's focused on foreigners, but Americans have been caught up in it if they communicate with foreigners. And one of, you know, then-candidate Donald Trump's advisors was caught up in that. Uh, what else on the agenda? Um, House Republicans are also expected to move forward on impeachment. Right before the break, they voted to open an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Now they're also pursuing impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over what they say is a dereliction of his duty to secure the southern border. Um, You know, there's also, on a more positive note, there is a bipartisan bicameral talks going uh, going on about a possible tax package, one that would expand the child tax credit to some degree, something that Democrats want, and then restore some lapsed Trump tax cuts like research and development that Republicans want. Now, if that were to happen, it would have to happen soon because tax season is fast approaching. Sounds like it's already a long list and this is an election year which I imagine makes it harder to get anything done. Yes. And look, you know, the 118th Congress thus far has been one of the most unproductive in recent history. So I think it might be somewhat optimistic to think they'll make progress on a lot of these things. But, you know, Congress can surprise. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. (laughs) And you'll have those surprises for us if they happen. Caitlin, thank you so much. You're welcome, Ryan. Caitlin Kim, our Washington, D.C. reporter as Congress resumes work next week. Still to come, having kids turned a popular Colorado comedian into wallpaper. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every time you buy a scratch-off or a lottery ticket, some of that money goes to support our great outdoors. Colorado Parks and Wildlife received 10% of their funding directly from the lottery, and that's for investments in our state parks system. But how much money are we talking? Find out in the next Colorado Wonders, Monday on Morning Edition and All Things Considered from CPR News. Why do people have kids when the world often feels terrible? That question is at the heart of a new special from Denver comedian Adam Caton Holland. He and his wife, Katie, chose to have a second child at a pretty bleak time. I'll never forget the moment we decided we were in the backyard because that was all we were allowed to do by the CDC. And uh, 
it was just the uh, height of the George Floyd protests, and there was a police helicopter flying overhead, but you couldn't even look up to see it because literal ash was raining from the sky. From I can't even remember which wildfire it was that season. And uh, America was as divided as it had been since the Civil War, and I just thought to myself, you know it'll fix this. Another white dude. Yeah. You know, let's just throw another white dude at the situation. <laughs> Honey, finish up your Chablis and get inside. Tonight is about solutions. The special's called Wallpaper, and it's available on the comedy site 800 Pound Gorilla. It was filmed at Denver's Bug Theater, where Adam Caton Holland cut his comedy chops. His career has grown to include appearances on late-night television, his own TV series. He also founded the High Plains Comedy Festival. We met at The Bug for some conversation and more clips. Hi, Adam. Hello. This new special is a slam dunk. Your timing is immaculate, as is your delivery. But how many times have you bombed on this stage? (laughs) Great question. I do a monthly show here called The Grolix with my friends. And our one rule is we have a lot of repeat fans. So the three of us have to have 10 new minutes every month. And we fly in a headliner so you can be assured there's a great ending act. We have a local who's great, but the three of us, 10 brand new minutes. So, you know, out of those 10, half kind of work every month. (laughs) So in answer to your question, uh, every month I bomb a little bit at this stage, but that is the beauty of it. It's my um, workshop. Yeah. And so bombing on this stage is not as scary as other stages because this is where we're just working stuff out is the sort of way you can reframe that if you want to. Yeah, the Grolix, these are your comedy buddies. Yes. I think actually it was because of your comedy troupe that I learned the term Grolix. That's the word for the kind of like hashtag and exclamation marks that you use instead of actually writing out the F-bomb. A hundred percent. In a comic strip when the character's swearing, a Grolix replaces the swear word. Yeah, uh, which I've always found to be a testament to the intelligence of your comedy. Well, I read it in a New Yorker article, so you know it. (laughs) What does this theater, this stage at The Bug mean to you, Adam? I'm really glad you asked that question. This theater means everything to me. I can remember the first time I came here, truly, my mom brought me, I was 16, and we saw The Santa Land Diaries by David Sedaris. And that was long before, that was one of his first efforts. It was before he was this cultural icon. So I just saw that and was floored and thought it was so funny. Had never been to this little theater. You know, I grew up in Park Hill. At that point in my life, yeah, I was east side of Denver. I didn't even know this side of town. So it really just opened me up to, oh, wow, here's this literary titan, David Sedaris. Here's this great theater. Here's this whole other side of town. It just, you, I could feel my brain expanding the mm. first time I ever came here. And years later, when we started doing our monthly show here, it just clicked. It became the spot. And so I love the bug. Sandaland Diaries. I think debuted on Morning Edition, and it's David Sedaris's account of being a mall elf. Not even a Santa, an elf. Exactly. Back to that opening clip. It's the pandemic. Wildfires are scorching the West. Protesters are getting tear gassed outside the state capitol. How do you decide to have a second kid, your youngest, Ellis, amidst all that turmoil? 
Yeah, it was kind of hard. Uh, you know, we had gone and protested as well and brought our first kid and tried to socially distance while protesting. And it was just a really dark time. But on the other hand, we also had planned to have a second kid and we delayed it as we watched the world burn a little bit. And then the world burned and we were still here. And my wife is, you know, God bless her. She's an eternal optimist. And we just thought, let's do it. There's this, there's this Wilco lyric by Jeff Tweedy. It's like every generation thinks it's the end of the world. <gasps> and I kind of heard that and thought, yeah, that's really true. I mean, our parents hit under desks because of nuclear annihilation. Yeah. We're all terror. Every generation thinks it's the end of the world. And I kind of just thought, yeah, I'm going to go that way. Oh, I needed to hear that today, Adam, because I think I feel especially dark about the world. There are times, though, I remind myself that between like about 1960 and 1968, there were assassinations of our leaders. Oh, man. Can you imagine the year 1968 with like MLK and Bobby Kennedy? Yeah. And you're a young, optimistic kid. That would just devastate you. So I, I think pathos and anxiety is not just our generations. Mm -hmm. Oh, do you think that you feel things more intensely because you're a comedian? I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah, more I, intensely I, than who? Right? Yeah, I think everybody <laughs> feels things pretty intensely. But I know a lot of comedians, and I, I think there is a sort of general trait of vulnerability and at least allowing yourself to feel those things pretty hard. As you say in the special, you will not be having a third. Oh, Lord, no. We're done at two. No more kids. If any of you have more than two, God bless you. We're done. We're, we have two, and we're, we're barely surviving. We're husks of people. <laughs> two, and we're done. My wife is very serious. She wants me to get a vasectomy. She is dead serious. She wants me to get a vasectomy. She's like, you've got to get a vasectomy. And I said, how am I going to have a secret family if I get a vasectomy? This is a radio first for me, asking about a vasectomy. Okay. If you get one, yeah. will it be fodder for your comedy? I mean, yeah, how could it not? Okay, good. If someone's going in there and <laughs> dying my tubes and I'm just like, well, I got nothing on this. <laughs> I think that's when I hang it up and apply it to the library. I guess this means you haven't had it yet. I have not had it yet. Okay, uh, just checking in. I talk a big game on the special, but when I get it, You'll be my second text. I'll, I'll let my wife know, and then I'll let Ryan Warner know it happened. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come back on, and we'll talk all about oh, it. Oh, good. Okay. I'll, yeah. I'll get that news tweeted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 100%. As we speak, your kids are five and two and a half. As a comic, was it hard to find new things to say about parenthood? Like, to avoid jokes that feel tired somehow? 100%. And that was a fear of mine, because... You know, I started comedy when I was 24 and liked to traverse in the edgier material and sort of be an alternative comedian. And, and then you have kids and you don't want to morph into this kids say the darndest thing guy who's up there just being cheesy. So it was a balancing act. And I really wanted this special to resonate with young kids. And I remember I... Um, you mean people without kids? People without, yeah. Yeah. I wanted it to resonate with people without kids, people who may not have lived the experience of having a family or whatever. Yeah. But about a couple of weeks before I recorded the special here, I was in Raleigh at a club called Good Nights. And it was the first time that I ever saw TikTok working for me. I, all these, you know, Gen Z 20 somethings were at the show. And I was asking, I was like, how did you find out about this? They're like, we saw you on TikTok. 
And I said, great. And then after the show, I was talking to them and I asked them and they loved it. They loved it. They laughed their asses off. And I thought, okay, now this is ready. If I can make a 22 year old who found me on TikTok laugh, laugh at about my fatherhood stuff. Parenthood, right. Then I've written a universal experience or I'm at least sharing it in a way that everyone can find funny. So that's when I knew I was like, it's ready. And that was very reassuring. And I'm not a parent and I was, I was captivated by the special. I thought it was hilarious. Thank and you. It's relatable even if you don't have kids. But to that idea of saying something new, yeah, that's gotta be tough in the parenthood space. I imagine so. I, you can't have too much pressure on yourself to be like, what am I, how am I breaking the mold of anything anyone's ever done before me? Because you share your experience, and if it's honest to you, I think people, that's what art is. That's what resonates. Ah, uh, that takes the pressure off. I think so. So if I can share it in a way that's like, hey, this is my experience, and I found this part funny, generally my radar is pretty decent, so I hope to think that you'll find it funny as well. Is this a special about fatherhood or parenthood? Hmm, great question. I think it is about fatherhood, and that's why I called it wallpaper, because I have a joke in there that, that talks about when you become a father, you drift into the background of your family and you become wallpaper. And I think my dad had that experience and it's this sort of martyr thing, but you always, my dad always referred to himself as the LVP. I'm the least valuable player in this family. <laughs> and we were always like, no, you're just a drama queen. But now as a dad, you're like, yeah, you get it, you get it. And you're fine with it, it's your role. But it is a weird thing to go from number one in your life to number four and view yourself as the fourth most important person in your orbit. That's a huge change. Yeah. So it was more about that change in mindset. Being number one in my life, being the guy, being Adam Catenhall on stage, to being a background character in the story of me. Wallpaper is the new special from Denver stand-up Adam Caton Holland. It's streaming on the comedy site 800 Pound Gorilla. When we come back, Adam is tired. Also, what sound does a giraffe make? And are his kids funny? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Come on, children, you're acting like children. Every generation thinks it's the end of the world All you fat followers get fit fast Every generation thinks it's the last Thinks it's the end of the world Indie 1023 is Discovery, old favorites, the best in new music, and Colorado artists. Let's make a mistake tonight, like Indie 1023, a service of Colorado Public Radio. Let's return to the Bug Theater in North Denver. That's where comedian Adam Caton Holland filmed his new TV special, Wallpaper. It's about fatherhood. You talk a lot about how tired you are in this special. <laughs> this is sounding really exciting. <laughs> um, in fact, you start backstage face down on the floor as if you've collapsed from exhaustion. And then at the end of the special, you return to the same spot backstage prostrate. <laughs> is wallpaper actually good birth control? Maybe, maybe. Wallpaper is what you need it to be. If you are looking for a reason to have kids, Watch wallpaper. If you're looking for a reason not to have kids, watch wallpaper. Watch. 
Um, we have to play some of the giraffe bit. Oh, sure. It's yeah. uproarious. You're reading an animal book with your kids, and one of them asks, what sound does a giraffe make? And that's when we realize no one knows what a giraffe says. They don't teach us what giraffes say. And then we hit upon the fact that this is our opportunity to teach our sons whatever the f we want <laughs> for when it comes to what a giraffe says. And I don't want to give you guys the wrong impression of me as a parent. I'm going to arm my children with the accurate information they need to successfully navigate society. But uh, what kind of comic would I be? If I didn't throw my son one curveball and just see how many years I could keep him swinging at it. So this isn't even a joke at all. This is a straight up truth. My wife and I have been teaching our sons that drafts say, HORT! Yeah, H-O-R-T, HORT! And we're telling them they scream it because it hurts them so bad. But that's just one of nature's very cruel, strange truths that giraffes excruciatingly scream, Hort! And he 100% believes it. Anytime a draft comes up anywhere, he's like, drafts, they go, Hort! We're like, yes, they do, little buddy. You go tell all your friends. <laughs> Adam, putting together this special, what, if any, rules did you make for yourself around material about your wife and kids? Like, what's fair game and what's not? Anything off the table? I don't think anything's off the table, no. But I, you know, I don't care about the kids yet because they're not old enough to watch it and police me. <laughs> I want to make my wife happy. I want to treat her respectfully. And so if ever anything's, like, condescending or falling into hacky, oh, my wife's annoying me stuff, I avoid that, like any tropes. I want you to come away from the special being like, this guy loves his wife and loves his kids. Yeah. I don't want them to be the, the butt of any joke. I want them to be the influence, but not the butt. Yeah, this is not uh, home improvement. Right. Uh? <laughs> well, that was pretty good. That was mm. pretty, pretty good impersonation Thank there. Thank you, I've, I'm multi-talented. How's your relationship with friends who don't have kids? Done. I don't have any time for them. Uh -huh. I'm a bad friend and I don't care. I'm done doing things. <laughs> um, I, I love the time we had together and I cherished it <laughs> and it's over. They're not all that interested in seeing you, frankly. Everyone knows where we're at. It's a two-way street. Adam's dead to them and they're dead to me. Is that true? No, but I do find uh, it's easier with friends that have kids. It is. It's just this, it's, I think it's why you find friends in the first place. I mean, obviously you have friends from every different walk of life, but you know, commonality of experience often is what leads to the deeper friendships. Is there sadness there? Yeah, definitely. Uh -huh. And my wife and I talk about that. That's just like middle-aged parent stuff. You sort of have to let go of like the young you, where it was just, you're the protagonist and move into this shared version of you while finding time for yourself and all of that. But it is, it is a morning of kind of like, all right, that was one period of my life mm -hmm. and it is decidedly done. And now on to the next one. Are your kids funny? Oh, dude, they're hilarious. Malcolm, the oldest one, is uh, more cerebral. Uh -huh. He's very observant and he wants to study a situation and learn it and then he'll jump in. And Ellis is- Ellis like, likes meat. Ellis likes meat. Ellis is Chris Farley. 
He just rolls in, <laughs> like, takes his shirt off and falls over and does it again for the laugh, again and again and again. And Malcolm thinks it's the funniest thing. So at dinner, he'll be like, Ellis, do goofy things. And Ellis stands on the table and spits food everywhere and burps and farts. And it's all very broad. Mm-hmm. Um, but he loves that laugh. He loves it. It's scary to see. So there's not a lot of discipline in the home. There's none. Uh-huh. They're winning. All right. Like a thousand to zero. Uh, indeed, your second kid loves, I think you say, meat and trucks. <laughs> yeah. And you try to get him into dolls to kind of play with gender norms. Yeah. And it works. Yes. And it made me wonder, Adam, Kate, and Holland, what you were obsessed with as a kid. Like, for me, it was sharks and airplanes. Oh, wow. Okay. What Was there something you were just preoccupied by? You know, initially, really standard little boy stuff. He-Man, G.I. Joe... Ninja Turtles. Did Shira make it in there? I didn't Shira did not no, make just, it in there. I mean, okay. like, like right. just alpha boy crap. Yeah. And then, um, then I once I started to kind of feel the creative itch, I really started drawing cartoons a lot and reading comic strips. Not cool X Men, Superman, Batman, but Garfield, Calvin and Hobbes, the the comic strips in the newspaper. And I thought I want to be a cartoonist. I want to draw. And so I would just draw and draw and draw and draw and get, I'd go to the tattered cover, the old Cherry Creek one, and my parents would just drop me off in the cartoon book section. Wow. And I'd be there for two hours, just happy as could be, just reading all those things. So I got really, that was my first obsession was comic strips. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the theme there of comic to comic, right? Two yeah. different uses of those terms, but in a similar space. Did that like help hone your sense of humor or punchline? Not really, because okay. if you read a lot of those, you know, they're pretty cheesy. They're pretty yeah, they're bad. not belly laugh. They're not belly laugh. The, you know, the far side, Calvin and Hobbes, those are Mount Rushmore, in my opinion. But the bulk of them are, are pretty crappy. Like a family circus is not highbrow stuff going right. on there. So I don't know, maybe there is sort of the idea that after a da-da-da-da-da-da, boom, there should be a joke. Maybe I learned that. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. I've never drawn any connective thread other than laughter and, and funny, silly stuff. You don't have a lot of material about Kathy trying on a swimsuit. I used to have a great bit, if I do say so myself, about Archie oh. and how Archie took a turn a while ago. I don't know if you know. when like All these comics go off in a million different IP directions. But the Archie, there was a, in the real Archie universe, Archie grows up, starts working on the campaign of a senator who's a gay man, who there's an assassination attempt on this guy, and Archie takes the bullet, and Archie dies. That happens what? in the Archie universe. And so I wrote a joke about, oh yeah, if you don't stay up with these comics, all sorts of things happen. And I talk about <laughs> what happens to Crankshaft and Kathy and all these, but that, like Archie went that way. Whoa. And I was just like, you know, that's not what we were expecting reading Archie eating hamburgers and, and wanting to be with Betty and Veronica. Didn't think he'd be a civil rights hero. Yeah, I didn't go Harvey Milk on <laughs> I it. I know, yeah. but I'm telling you, it's a thing, so. There's material there if you if you fish for it. Do your kids understand what you do for a living? Yeah, now they do. They do? They do. Because I travel a fair amount. I try to do it less with them. But, you know, dad's going to tell jokes. And Malcolm really understands it because now he's seen me doing clips. He's seen clips of me doing it and uh-huh. stuff. But Malcolm just says, go tell jokes, dad, dad. And he knows that that's the work. Your bit about flying with children is hilarious. Um, it was news to you that TSA makes sure adults traveling with kids aren't actually kidnapping them. 
We're passing through security and suddenly a TSA guy is in Malcolm's face. And he's just like, hey son, what's your name? And Malcolm's like, uh, 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 Malcolm. He goes, okay, good. Is that your brother over there? He goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, what's your brother's name? He goes, Ellis. He goes, okay. Are those your parents? And Malcolm goes, I think so. <laughs> Can you think of a worse answer than I think so? No, no is actually a better answer. No is like, it's an uncle, it's a godparent, produce some paperwork, get to the bottom of it. But I think so. That's what they've been telling me since they took me from the campsite four days ago. And when I say otherwise, they hit me so very hard. So I think so. Adam, this is such a fertile time for stand-up specials. I mean, they're so fun to watch relatively cheap to make. And as someone who has watched a fair number of them, I wonder, do you memorize a show like this? I mean, is this 45 minutes of lines you've learned? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. I think there's a misconception. I think a lot of people think, oh, they're just kind of riffing up there. Right. And maybe a handful are, but not for the whole thing. Um, no, everyone works these jokes out. That's why it's like your hour. You go and work on your hour and you establish it. The trick is to present it as if it's brand new, as if you've never thought these thoughts before. You're mm -hmm. sharing them in real time with the audience and it feels like a common experience. But, but no, we write our jokes, we know our jokes. These are things we've told a hundred times, if way more than that probably. Well now with TikTok and now this TV special, if you go out on the road and you know, do a live standup, the chance that that material has reached the audience already is really high. Big time, big time. More so than ever before. Right. Yeah. Like I saw, I think it was Jessica Curson. Uh -huh. Do you know her? Yeah, She's I do. She's hilarious. Great. She's great. But I had seen probably 40% of her material on YouTube, TikTok, yeah. you know, Instagram by the time I got to the theater. Is that complicating comedy? I think it is, but I think, and this is no knock on Jessica, I don't know where she was at in the process of development or whatever, or how quickly she puts out her jokes. You know, you record an hour like I did wallpaper, yeah. and then that's done, so on to the new hour. I think you shouldn't release it too much until it's ready to be shot like a special or recorded like an album. So the stuff I put on TikTok are, is older clips or throwaway jokes that I'm not gonna be using too much But this anyway. is strate it's strategic. It's, it's a th conversation every comic has to have with okay. themselves now, yeah, for sure. Okay, that's helpful to understand. But I think everyone's, it's the Wild West. Everyone's doing it however they wanna do it. Most people though, if they come to a show and they're hearing jokes they've heard before, are disappointed. So I'm constantly <laughs> cognizant of that. To the point that if I go to Kansas City, I have in my notebooks the last set I did when I was in Kansas City, and I actively make sure I'm not doing any of those jokes. Whoa! Okay, that, that just blew my mind. Amazing geographic specificity then. I mean, I don't know, I, like I said, everybody does it differently, but I keep set lists in my joke book, uh -huh. and I just try to be like, all right, last time I was in Seattle, what did I do? And, and go that way. You're good at stand-up, but do you feel good at it? <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, and I think the second you feel, I feel good at it, I feel capable, I'm, I'm confident in my skills, but 
I think there's this nagging self-doubt of like, nah, you're, you're not that great that propels you. And the second you're like, I'm great, you're not. Mm. So I think there has to be a little bit of, of self-doubt to keep you going, keep you motivated. So I'm confident in my abilities. I'll let other people say whether I'm good or great or whatever. What haven't you figured out about fatherhood yet that you wish you knew? You know, in doing this album, in this special, I really related to my dad a lot. I really understood my father a lot better. Yeah. And so that is kind of interesting that I've like, and I've always had a close relationship with him, but now I'm like, oh, I get it, dude. You were your own guy, you know, propelling forward in a direction and then your family came along and it's great, but it altered what you are and how you see things. And you just don't think of that. You just think of your dad as like the dad. You, right. never think, you never think of the uh, origin story of the dad. Because he's but wallpaper. He's wallpaper. So you don't really look at the wallpaper all that much. But his whole life, he was just an origin story. And then he became the wallpaper. So you just, I think I've learned more about my father, if anything, than, wow. than about being a father. Yeah, and there's probably more for you to learn about Totally. Him. I got a five-year-old yeah. and a two-year-old. Like When they're teenagers, I'm sure they're going to teach me way more lessons than I want to know. During this special, you have this imagined conversation with one of your sons, and he becomes a kind of sage, reflecting on your career and the meaning of life. And it made me wonder how much your worries as a father are about what they're facing now versus what they're going to face as they grow up. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of put a percentage on that worry for me as a dad? what I'm worried about now versus what they're going to face. Yeah, are, are most of your worries about, oh God, they're going to hit their head on that thing uh -huh. or, oh God, they're they're going to grow up in a climate right. apocalypse right. and they won't have a job. or That is most of my worry. Okay. The future of the earth and what they're going to be able to do in that and all the horrible things that are happening and how they're going to have to face it and will they have water, like all these things. But I think, as we said earlier, we're not the first generation to fear these huge apocalyptic themes. And while I'm a cynical, pessimistic guy, having a kid and then having another kid is the most optimistic thing you can do. Mm. And it is sort of a bet on life and them and things moving forward. And so at some point, I'm not there yet, you do just have to take your hands off the wheel and say, it's your turn, little dudes. I'm gonna arm you the best I can, but here's the planet, here's the world, and it's a gift you're in it. So good luck to you. Adam, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Adam Caton Holland is a fixture on Denver's stand-up scene. He's best known for his work with the Grolix comedy troupe, the true TV series Those Who Can't, and for starting the High Plains Comedy Festival. Adam's new special, Wallpaper, is available on the comedy site 800 Pound Gorilla. It was filmed at the Bug Theater, where we recorded our interview. Diet can improve the lives of people with chronic health conditions. Research increasingly backs that up. Here's CPR's John Daly with a success story. On a warm and sunny day, I meet Diane Royball outside her brick home in southwest Denver. She's 69 with brown hair, 
a warm smile, and a battle with breast cancer on her hands. I stay positive and I'm um, beating it, I'm going to beat it. I do everything I can for my body to make sure that it has what it needs to beat it. She says her last PET scan was clear. Royball says she has to keep taking care of herself the rest of her life, which includes eating right, avoiding preservatives and additives, going for heart-healthy foods, vegetables. And, uh, you know, good protein, too, to give me energy and stuff. Royball gets special assistance from folks in a gleaming, large stainless steel kitchen across town in North Denver. It's operated by a nonprofit called Project Angel Heart. It's a busy beehive of activity as a small army of volunteers stir up hundreds of packages for delivery. Today, it's a savory breakfast bowl with salsa roja, rice, and zucchini. One of those volunteers is Jane Garman, a retired neonatal nurse from Westminster. If I can make one person's day better, then I've done a good job. And here I get to make 17, 1,800 people's a week better. Project Angel Heart doesn't just provide vast volumes of food, 750,000 meals last year. These are medically tailored for the specific dietary needs of those living with serious illnesses. Does it feel like this saves lives too? It does save lives. I believe that it does. We did a study years ago about how feeding people the right food keeps them out of the hospital, keeps them well, so that they can do other things. Owen Ryan is CEO and president of Project Angel Heart. He says the idea is that for a lot of health conditions, especially serious ones, if you return to eating the way you did before you got sick, your medicine and your treatment plan is only going to be so effective. Like you need to actually change your diet in order to fully improve or to fully feel better from a lot of conditions. He uses the example of kidney disease where you need to seriously limit eating certain foods. You can't have tomato. There's certain uh, potassium, phosphorus, things you really have to avoid. That's tough for people to do at home. When they get that serious diagnosis, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to change their food. That's where Project Angel Heart steps in, says Ryan. So I like to say that when doctors prescribe a specific diet, we fill the fridge. Chronic conditions drive the majority of healthcare costs, with one in five dollars attributable to unhealthy diets, says Dr. Wendelin Gazanski, a researcher with Kaiser Permanente Colorado. Food can and should be used as an intervention to improve people's health, and we need more research in this area. The current research is incredibly promising. Project Angel Heart has been living out that mission for decades now. Denver Mayor Mike Johnson was on hand to celebrate a mind-boggling landmark. 10 million meals. Serving up its 10 millionth meal. It's also the personal relationship that comes with knowing that someone loves you enough to make you a hot meal, package you a hot meal, and deliver it to your house. That milestone meal soon was out the door and handed off. And this is the 10 millionth meal of Project Angel Heart, and we're just delighted to be able to deliver it to you. Making the exchange, Charles Robbins. Back in 1991, he got the ball rolling, putting together a group to hand out the first meals donated by the restaurant Racine's to HIV and AIDS patients. We packaged up the lasagna and a salad and put uh, magazines and roses in the, in the bags and drew little notes on the bags as well. And uh, we had a small band of volunteers that delivered them that day, and that's how it started. 10 million deliveries later, the recipient is Diane Royball, 
the woman fighting cancer you heard earlier. Thank you, and it means a lot to me to be able to get it. It was a nice surprise that I was <laughs> given the honor, and it's an honor to get this today, and, and, and a blessing to get these once a week, you know, f- to have them in my fridge when I need them. And just like a good, nutritious, delicious meal, Project Angel Heart is like a gift that keeps on giving. Thank you. I'm John Daly, CPR News. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We've chosen our next book to read together. It's called Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey by Colorado science writer Florence Williams. The project began when her 25-year marriage crumbled. The first thing that kind of rocked my world was how much it hurt. After thinking my whole life that heartbreak was sort of melodramatic and my friends were going through it, I I just thought it was... um, that they were being a little bit, you know, histrionic. But actually, you know, when it happened to me, I was like, oh my God, this is so devastating. And I felt it in my body. Like I had been plugged into an amplifier. Like I was like buzzing with anxiety and grief and fear. We've chosen her book as counter-programming ahead of the Valentine's Day barrage. So read Heartbreak. And then meet us where else but Loveland, Colorado. Wednesday, February 7th, we'll be at the Rialto Theater, where Williams will also discuss the science of bouncing back. It really blew me away, this advice I got that I had never heard before, that we can find resilience in beauty. And that if we can learn to cultivate beauty, um, we can become more resilient. Again, Heartbreak by Florence Williams is our latest pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. More information and tickets for our February 7th recording at Loveland's Rialto Theater at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. And that is our show for today. I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Tyler Bender and Hart Van Denberg. This is CPR News and KRCC. You're a heartbreaker.